Tone Deaf is the journey of a theater nerd, bringing musicals into the life of their musically challenged spouse. This show is rated explicit for mature content and strong language. I'm sorry for me. Spoilers are in every episode, so if you haven't seen the show we are reviewing, you can always check back in later with us. We'll be here when you get back. Welcome to Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse. I'm Kay, a musical theater nerd. And I'm Warren. I'm musically challenged. And we are back in your ear holes on a limited basis. Mmm, you like us in your ear holes, don't you? Oh goodness, we are not even 15, well now we're 20 seconds in, so it's okay. (laughs) Warren being horny. (laughs) I didn't say any curse words, and I didn't say anything overtly uh, 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 gross or anything like that. (laughs) It's a good thing we aren't cross-posting this to YouTube. Not that I would care. <laughs> I don't know if that would get flagged. I just went, mmm. Mmm. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> Continuing onward. Wow, we're back. <laughs> so, uh, this episode that we are doing is one that I had wanted to do, but life kept getting in the way. Um, and... Those of you who know us, you know what's been going on, so we don't need to talk about all that. What we will be talking about is A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, which is a production that Warren and I saw. It was the Theater Tallahassee production. So once again, uh, thank you so much, Melissa, for letting us know about this production, because, oh my gosh, it was so fun. It was. It was a lot of fun. But, you know, I, I think we need to talk about how A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder is a ripoff, though, of the original one. Go ahead. No, no, keep going, keep going. Because, you know, the original one, which is A Scoundrel's Map to Lust and Slaughter. Oh my god. <laughs> I was proud of that when I thought of it. That's pretty good. <laughs> pat myself on the back for that for that joke. Better than a gentleman's guide to love and unaliving. Mmm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> unaliving. Because you can't say murder. <laughs> God. Is that just YouTube? It's actually just TikTok, and I don't know if it's even really TikTok or if someone thought that that was the case, and now everyone's fucking doing it. <laughs> Yeah, I can say that two minutes in. I'm going to unalive the <laughs> shit out of this stupidity. <laughs> so, uh, Warren, you're going to see why what you said was funny in a little bit. So, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder is an adaptation of the 1907 novel Israel Rank, the autobi- autobiography of a criminal by, and I'm not kidding about the name, Roy Hornyman. Woo! Yes, <laughs> my dude. I'm sure it's pronounced Horniman, but <laughs> oh, I mean, when, when did it? When was it? Uh, 1907. Okay, so he's probably a prude too at that point. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Have to find out how many cornflakes he was eating. <laughs> it's corn holes you should be asking about. Jesus. 
<laughs> so, the novel was adapted into a film in 1949, the film being Kind Hearts and Coronets, which we need to watch because this is where the musical gets all of the all of the members of the family that are the future victims are played by the same actor thing. <laughs> in the case of the film, it is Alec Obi-Wan Guinness. His name is Obi-Wan? No, Alec Guinness, who was Obi-Wan. Oh. Oh, <laughs> Alec Obi-Wan Guinness. I see. I see. I'm understanding now. The train may have pulled into the station a little late. I may have gotten on the wrong car, but I found my seat. Oh my god, Warren. So, this will... Uh... This will dovetail nicely into this next little bit of trivia, because the writers of the musical, Robert L. Friedman and Stephen Lutvak, had actually wanted to adapt Kind Hearts and Coronets, specifically. From Steve Lutvak in a Q&A with Purdue Convocations, I was in college. It was 1978 or 79, and I wasn't sleeping. So I turned on my black and white television, and two or three channels in, there was this movie. And I went, oh yeah, that's Kind Hearts and Coronets. That's one of my dad's favorite films. And I literally bolted right, upright in bed, smacked my forehead, and said, oh my god, it's a musical. <laughs> now I know that sounds incredibly ridiculous and hyperbolic and over-the-top dramatic, but it's really what happened. And I happened upon a copy of the script, and I remember thinking, it lays out like a twisted version of Oklahoma. <laughs> Oklahoma's already a little twisted, but go on. There are two women with a man in the middle, and one of them is married to somebody else, so it felt like it had the shape, even to my teenage mind, of a traditional musical, yet with this very particular weird dark tone laid on top of that. And I tried to get the rights to the film several times, and then finally did, and then we wrote Kind Hearts and Coronets, the musical. So they also realized that the novel of the movie was based on was in public domain. Oh, nice. So they went through their script, took out everything that was in the film, leaving their own adaptation and the stuff from the original novel, which was still enough to make a musical with. And in Friedman's words... We decided to take out everything from our show, which was in the film, but not in the novel, which left plenty because we had already made up a lot of stuff. And we hired a terrific copyright lawyer who vetted everything and gave us advice, and we didn't take any chances. We made sure that there was nothing from the film, and that turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Some of the things that were changed from the novel were the modes of death and who died, which led to some very creative deaths that were still able to be comedic for a musical comedy because they couldn't use the ones in the movie, and the book ones were not funny. I love creative deaths. An early workshop of the musical was staged in 2004, and then more workshopping continued until 2009, which is where we'll pick up the interview again. Because this is when the duo was hit with a lawsuit from the rights holders of the film. the From Friedman, this process took 13 months and the judge dismissed a lot of the points that they had in their lawsuit. It came down to one issue, which is, could we have one actor play all the people in one family who get murdered? That wasn't in the novel because it wasn't a theatrical performance, but it was in the film. Our attorney basically argued that since theater began, that kind of thing's been happening. And the judge dismissed the case outright in, Mar outright in March of 2011. Woo! And from Lutvac, 
The judge said in his decision, ultimately the movie and the musical are two completely different iterations of the same underlying material. The movie plants its tongue firmly in its cheek and the musical sticks its tongue out. Did you say that, sorry, I'm completely glossing over what you just said because you said the name of the person, was it Lutvac? Yeah, L-U-T-V-A-K. Oh, I was hoping it was L-O-O-T-V-A-C because I'm just imagining like a backpack uh, a vacuum cleaner that's just sucking up all the loot. Oh my God, Warren. <laughs> God, I love you. So, um... With all of that said, the show could go forward with an October 2012 premiere at the Hartford Stage in Hartford, Connecticut. From there, it moved to the Old Globe Theater in San Diego in 2013, and then on November 17, 2013, it opened at the Walter Care Theater on Broadway for 905 performances uh, that ended January 17, 2016, and garnered the Tony for both Best Musical and Best Book of a Musical. Nice. The national tour ran from September of 2015 to March of 2017, with a second national tour running from September of 2017 to May of 2018. Like I said, the version that we saw was the Theater Tallahassee production, which ran from October 28th to November 14th, 2021, and had online streaming from November 19th to the 21st. Which is how we watched it. Yes, which is how we watched it. We did not go to Florida. <laughs> more streaming! Yes, please, more streaming. I don't like leaving the house. <laughs> so, our director was Jesse Reeves, who is one of our patrons. Ah, <gasps> uh, Yes! And uh, we had Robert Nelson was music director, friend of the show Melissa Findlay was stage manager, uh, Darcy Brown was choreographer, uh, Melissa also did scenic design, our lighting designer was Shelby Chase, sound designer Zach Kramer, costume designer was uh, Linda Buleska, uh, the Dicequith costume designer was Leah Reeves, Props designer was Robert Stewart, and fight choreographer was Charles Burden. And for our cast, we had Monty Navarro being played by Jesse Hinton, the Dicequith family being played by Robert Stewart, Sibella being played by Robin Smith-Peters, Phoebe played by Jessica Johns, Miss Shingle played by Constance Kleinman and Valerie Johns on Alternating Nights, so a double cast role. And then for the ensemble, we had uh, Woman 1 slash Tour Guide was Laura Smith. Woman 2 slash Lady Eugenia Dicequith was Lauren, Lauren Antista and Jessica Frazier, which they were also doubled. Woman 3 and Miss Evangeline Barley was Hannah Talbot. Man 1 and Tom Copley was Patrick Campbell. Man 2 and Inspector Pinckney was Joe Visco. And Man 3 and the Magistrate was Jake Armstrong. So, since we have seen this already, we'll take a quick intermission, and then we will be back with what we thought about this production of A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Spoilers, I liked it. Let's go. Wahoo! Warren. Hey, Kay. Do you know what time it is? Is it time to talk about our favorite people in the whole wide world? It is! Woo! We'd like to thank our stage crew sponsors, Jasmine Wu, Jeff, Tyler McCarty, and Shamik. 
and our producer circle sponsors, Bianucci, Taylor Brandt, Jesse, and Cookie. Thank you all so much for your continued support of our show. We truly appreciate it. Are you tired of Harry Potter? Want to get in on the next popular trend in young adult lit from 10 years before Harry Potter? Too bad. I'm Tyler. I'm Nate. And we're going to do a week-by-week analysis of the Animorphs. Book reports. 90s nostalgia. Two dumb idiots. Wherever you get your podcast. And now, the lights are going down and the music's starting back up, so let's head back to the second act of our show. Alright, Warren, what did you think of A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder? Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was a very entertaining, very hilarious. Um, I enjoyed the story. Characters were good. Songs were good. It was all around great show. I would absolutely recommend it to folks. I'd absolutely watch it again. Awesome. Let's get into your notes then. All right. So, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, also known as A Scoundrel's Map to Lust and Slaughter. (laughs) After our lovely opening music, a group of fancy people dressed all in black come out to tell the audience that if there's a wussy wuss who's faint of heart or has a weak constitution or is a general wimpy wimpy wuss wuss, you should leave now. At the time, we've been watching uh, Cry of Fear with my sister Shay, so I think I can handle this. So long as there are no creepy knife-wielding children, which, happy to report, no. Anyways, in the show, it is October of 1909 with some Earl of Importantness who is apparently about to be executed, and so he's leaving behind his memoir. And his story begins, like so many do, with an unexpected guest. Apparently, Earl came back from his mother's funeral and ran into Miss Shingle, who is a friend of his mother and has known Earl since he was a wee crotch goblin. (laughs) Anyways, Earl gets Miss Shingle some tea and she proceeds to probe Earl for answers about what his life will be like after his mother's passing. Miss Shingle comments on how much Earl looks like his father, who apparently died when he was seven. But boy, was Daddy Earl hot and handsome, <laughs> according to Miss Shingle, who fans herself as she gets the vapors. Miss <laughs> Shingle then drops the bombshell that Earl is a dice queef, an important family. <laughs> Earl is a dice queef, like his mother before him. But his dice queef mother fell in love with a not dice queef, and that angered the elder dice queefs who disinherited Earl's dear mother for loving a commoner. Earl breaks open his mother's safe storage box and finds letters to the dice queefs, and I Earl's should have known. <laughs> I don't even remember what their real last name is. Dice queef. I said it like oh dice queefs. Fifteen minutes ago. Oh. That was 15 minutes ago. Jesus Christ. My brain is an Etch-A-Sketch. So yes, Earl breaks open his mother's safe storage box and finds letters to the dice queefs and Earl's birth certificate, which clearly states he's a dice queef. 
Miss Shingle tells Earl to seize his destiny. He is the son of the daughter of the grandson of the nephew of the second Earl of Highhurst. Suddenly, Earl's conscience pauses the scene to ponder on whether or not Miss Shingle is batshit crazy and perhaps <laughs> insane. But then he's like, nah, I want to claim noble heritage. And he reasserts his dicequeef bloodline. Jesus. Earl then decides to pen a letter to an extended relative to beg for a job. Because it's not what you know, it's who you know. And nepotism never goes out of style. <laughs> Nepo, baby. Nepo, baby. Woo! After Earl finishes penning his employment request form, his wife comes in to sing about... Oh, not his wife. His, uh, uh, uh... Love interest. Mm -hmm. His love interest comes in to sing about, Oh my god, I got earrings, which I hate. Have you noticed my shoes? No, you're a brute, but I don't know what I'd do without you. Mostly because it's 1909 and the law doesn't consider me a person yet. <laughs> Earl then drops the bombshell that he's of noble blood. And his wife, and his, uh, sorry, his love interest, Sabella, busts his balls just a bit, being like, Ha-ha, and I'm a princess of Babylon. <laughs> oh, and I guess she's just a gold digger, because apparently she's also <laughs> dating some rich, handsome non-dice queef who has a motor car. Earl is like, but marry me, Sabella. I'm going to be rich and important someday. And Sabella is like, but what about until then? I have an expensive earring buying and hating habit to support. <laughs> Earl gets a letter from his extended family who are like, Bitch, we don't know you or your whore mother. Piss off and don't contact us ever again or call yourself a Dicequeef or we'll sick our lawyers on you, peasant. Sincerely, Dicequeef Jr. Earl then sings a kinda sad song about how if he can't get people to recognize his blue blood, then Sabella will never settle for him. Cause... The best she can do as a woman in 1909 is marry for position. Earl then turns his attention to his jerk family, who kicked his mother out for diluting their pure blood with Earl's commoner father. Earl then tears up the go-fuck-yourself letter that he got from <laughs> Dice Queef Jr. Suddenly, a tour group comes through and a woman is like, blah, blah, English history, blah, blah, King John and Richard the Lionheart and Little John and Maid Marian and, of course, Robin Hood. <laughs> Anyways, some of the tour decides to sing to Earl about how lame he is and how all his dreams and hopes are worthless and that Sabella will never love him. It's at this time some rich douche in red comes in to be like, get the fuck out! And he sings about how he hates every butcher and barber paying six cents to touch all his nice things and be reminded of all the things they'll never have. Rich Red Douche then sings about how he doesn't understand the poor with all their being hungry and unable to have things. Seems so boring. Why don't they try not being poor? Anyways, I hate this guy and I wish we had a guillotine. <laughs> Rich Red Douche then laments that he does like one of the poors. He's a one-legged mute drunkard who might be his brother, but that's it. <laughs> to hell with all the other poors. Anyways, the audience claps for Rich Red Douche, who kindly fucks off stage right. 
And the scene changes to Earl penning his memoir and talking about how maybe he should try another family member who might acknowledge his mother and his polluted royal bloodline. <laughs> Earl goes to a chapel to talk to a chapel guy who talks about all the important stuff in the chapel. Windows and virgins. Did, did he say virgins? Why is chapel guy talking about virgins? Anyways, he wants to show Earl the tower of the chapel, and Earl asks if Chapel Dude could be a chapel bro and put in a good word with his extended family. And Chapel Dude is like, bruh, no. I stay out of rich people's businesses. Business, not businesses. I stay out of rich people business. And the duo continue mime-walking up the towers of the chapel. They get to the top, and the chapel dude is like, Since your grandfather disinherited your whore mother, I can't do anything, so nope. You'll be a red-blooded commoner forever. And then chapel dude loses his balance up on top of the chapel, and Earl, instead of saving the teetering man, he has a song about... What can I take from the dice queefs? These rich assholes who turned their backs on my mother for loving a commoner. I know. I'll kill them all. And Earl blows Chapel Dude. I mean, he, he blows on Chapel Dude, giving him just enough to fall off the tower, leaving his mark on the world in the form of a juicy splat. <laughs> Back at Earl's memoir, he's like, And so they thought Chapel Dude died because he was drunk. <laughs> Anyways, I had a series of humiliating jobs, and we hear him being a butcher, choppity chop chopping away as he narrates that one of his cousins or something is getting a is getting his beak wet with a showgirl at some resort, and I guess he has to be followed to ensure an accident happens. <laughs> Earl interrupts the incognito couple to be like, Hey, aren't you a showgirl? And Cousin Dicequeef is like, How dare you claim to know us, you peasant? Piss off before I flog you. And Showgirl is like, Oh, look at these people skating on the frozen lake. That looks like fun. Let's do it. Please, please, please. <laughs> and Cousin Dicequeef is all, But I want to bang instead. And Showgirl does her, Please, please, please. I want to skate. And Cousin Dicequeef relents and agrees to skate. Earl then has his mono song about being like, if I could poison this asshole instead of trying to find a way to make him fall through the ice into the frozen lake and die. Hmm. I'll get a handsaw and give it the old college try. <laughs> and success. Cousin Queef and his lady friend Jesus both fall Warren. through the ice and have a horribly slow on-screen death. All while Earl sings about how murder is easier than he thought. Earl gets a letter from Dicequeef Jr. Sr., who is like, Hey, sorry my dick son was so dismissive. If you need a job, please come visit us. Family and all that. And we find out that the sucker under the ice was Dicequeef Jr., who was the dick in the letter. And then we get Dicequeef Sr.'s offer... We get Dicequeef Sr., who offers Earl a job to be a successor since his son died under... Such mysterious circumstances. <laughs> Dicequeef Sr. gives Earl a check to 
enhance his wardrobe. Earl then runs into Sabelle, who is like, Oh my god, I'm engaged to a rich sugar daddy. Aren't you excited <laughs> that I landed a rich husband? Don't be sad that I'm not settling for you. Be happy I'm going to be living on Easy Street with my rich husband. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll meet someone more your level. A teacher or a widow, someone desperate enough to settle for you in your poor peasantness. And one day I'll be like, I'm so sad I didn't marry Earl because oh boy, I'm so unhappy being a rich wife. <laughs> Earl then is like, well, things are going well for me. Remember my blue blood? Well, it's happening. I got a new job with a heavy salary. And Sibel is like, oh, kiss me. I've forgotten all about my rich fiance. And the two kiss. <laughs> Earl then tries to talk Sibel to come away with him, but she's like, no, unhand me, you lecherous brute. And she scampers off, continuing to sing about what her husband will be like. And she's uh, in her veil. I don't. I don't know if she's actually at her wedding now or if it's just a theater thing. But anyways. <laughs> just a theater thing. There's a V formation on stage of people. There's a V formation of people on stage. And Earl is hanging out in the back like this fickle bitch. And then everyone walks off stage. Back at the memoir voice, Earl laments about thinking he's lost to Belle forever. And woe is him! We then see Earl come to the defense of another dice queef who's being bullied by a man who's upset that he's losing his family's land to the bank, which the dice queefs bought. And Earl gets punched in the face on accident. The peasants are driven off back to their hovels upon the threat of charges being brought upon them. The two men introduce one another and have a drink and sing a gay song that's reminiscent of the song from My Fair Lady that's all, Women, who need them? I'd rather be with a man. But this is a bit more touching in this one, and the lyrics are great, and they are full of double, double entendres, which I am all about. The two chums bottoms up their drinks and continue getting to know one another. Earl formally introduces himself as a cousin, one of less than pure blood, but the dice queef doesn't care. He's just happy to have a bromance. <laughs> the two mount the stick horse and borrow the coconuts from Monty Python's Holy Grail and set off back to the estate and his honey house. Because the man likes bees. Bees, Kay. And Cousin Beekeeper... Not the bees. Not the bees. And Cousin Beekeeper tells Earl about how bees can kill. So Earl does his research and finds that bees love honey. <laughs> honey. <laughs> Lavender. The, uh, the note... The note says that bees love lavender, not honey. See, bees make honey. Um, they can make honey from lavender. But, uh... But, yeah. That was, uh, that was a mistake on my part. And, uh, once Kay stops laughing, I'll continue. But, yes, bees love lavender. And so he smothers that shit all over the bee hat thing with the face net, bee mask, whatever the fucking thing's called. Anyways, after setting the murder in motion... 
Earl meets Beekeeper Cousin's sister, who taught, who uh, takes mercy on the fact that Earl is of mixed blood nobility, and she seems to be more reasonable as far as the Blue Bloods go, and she sings about how no one knows who she really is. She's the pearl in an oyster, and uh, sings about how the world would be better if everyone could live inside out. And my brain just, imagine, just imagines the mess and politely disagrees. Lauren. <laughs> She continues singing and mentions that she likes the belladonna flower and living outside. <clears throat> Earl takes a seat next to his cousin's sister on a swinging <laughs> bench, and, the, and she continues to sing about how sh what she wants in a man. She wants a noble man who doesn't care for noble stuff and likes her for her mind and not her blue blood. I think that's what she's singing about anyway. Mm -hmm. We see Beekeeper Cousin in the background, flailing around as bees follow him, murderously entranced by the scent of lavender. He dies in the back of the scene as Cousin Sister fawns over Earl. <laughs> Anyways, after another successful murder, we go back to the memoir voice and Earl talking about how his cousin, who he has the hots for, isn't ahead of him in the line of succession. But who is? His mother's cousin, who takes up lots of causes and stuff. We see her in the center of her sycophants being like, I need a new cause. Give me some ideas, everyone. And the sycophants barrage her with ideas. Earl rushes in to be like, Hey, we met at the consumption ball. I have a great idea for you. There are lots of orphans in Egypt. And the cause-encrusted cousin Queef is like, Yes! An orphanage in Cairo! That's a great idea! And she sets off. Earl is content with himself, believing that he sent her to her death, as an uprising in Cairo against the Empire was imminent. But she comes back all, Nah, those beggars and thieves can fuck off. <laughs> and she's like, I need a real cause. Something so horribly depressing. And the idea of helping the untouchables in India gets softballed to her, and she jumps at it, singing about how, what's the point of helping others unless the world knows about it? <laughs> However, she returns being like, all those poor unfortunate souls didn't want my help, and they ran away at the sound of my voice. <laughs> so Earl is like, how about the jungles of Africa? And she gets excited being like, yes, I can teach those vine-swinging tongue clickers to speak English. Jesus. I think she says that. Yeah. Something along those lines. About she that. says some racist shit. Anyway. Yeah. And she continues. Oh my God, I forgot about that. And she continues to be like, yes, they're poor unfortunate creatures, but they're still God's creatures. I'm going to go find a poor tribe worse than mine. <laughs> Earl is like, surely. This time, she's going to die. I sent her to teach English to a tribe of cannibals. And yep, she's dead. <laughs> or at least, uh, she's disappeared and is presumed dead. I have a guess that she'll pop up, maybe after Earl has killed everyone and thinks he'll take the throne. She'll pop back up, all, look at me, I'm boss lady now. <laughs> but we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> but Earl, at work, talking to his uncle boss, who is like, you know... <laughs> I was doing research, and you're surprisingly close to the throne, only three spots away. <laughs> Interesting, that. And then he continues to sing about how Earl is so damn noble and promising and devoted, almost like a son. I'm going to give him a raise. 
Earl and Sibel meet up again and do some face touching, all while she tells him about her honeymoon, and she sings about how he's much more desirable now that he's outgrown his common upbringing. <laughs> we then cut to Earl fencing with his uncle, who tells him about how eugenics is a good thing, and they need to find a way to keep the undesirables from breeding. <sighs> the two are exercising and doing tandem stretches, and then Major Dicequeef decides to bench his own body weight. In the middle of his set, Earl puts more weights on, and Major Dicequeef dies, the bench bar crushing his throat. We then cut to cousin-sister-love interest, who is waiting for Earl, and the two mourn over the mysterious and tragic death of her brother by bees. Bees! Oh my god, Warren, that was look loud. what you did. Bees. <laughs> Anyways, cousin's sister love interest tells him about how much she loved her brother and how she feels just lost without him. And also, her brother said Earl was the gayest man he'd ever met. <laughs> Aw, bromance murder. <laughs> we then have the memoir voice talking about how he successfully got another relative killed in a play by putting real bullets in a stage gun and suddenly I'm like, oof. This show is a little well-timed considering Alec Baldwin and that unfortunate situation with their near-identical situation. Holy shit. Yep. Anyways. That was them. Yep. Holy shit. Anyways, real death aside, the last surviving people of the Dicequeef bloodline sing about how they love Earl and how he's so good and great and is the least likely person to murder them all. <laughs> Back at the murdering murderer who murders, he got a raise and a promotion. But that's not enough for him. He's still got to kill everyone so he can be the Earl of Earls. <laughs> and he sits there and goes back and forth between, do I want to murder? Or I just want to be a successful lawyer, dude. And then a doctor comes in to be like, oh, hey, the guy you were worried about killing because he's been so kind to you? Yeah, don't worry. He had a heart attack and he's dead. <laughs> And Earl is like, just one left. <laughs> we then see townspeople reading the paper about how the Dicequeef family has had a run of bad luck this year. And only one person remains as heir to the throne. Intermission! <laughs> Back from intermission, we're at a funeral where Earl is giving a stirring eulogy about the man he kinda wanted to murder but kinda didn't want to murder, who also died of natural causes. Everyone at the funeral then sings about why all the Dicequeefs are dying. Is it a curse? Bad luck? Or foul play? And then the funeral people start to all trash talk the Dicequeefs. <laughs> all the times they said that family should drop dead, they never thought it would happen. People were even snickering from the back, and everyone is sick of wearing black. <laughs> After the song, the rich red douche from earlier comes out to be like, Why are all the dice queefs dying? It makes me think of my own mortality. <laughs> and then I realize, this asshole is the Earl. The Earl Earl. <laughs> Not the guy I call Earl. Rich red douche needs to die. I hate this guy the most. Come on, Earl. Not Earl, but soon to be Earl. Kill the Earl! Anyways, Earl, not Earl, but wants to be Earl, is hanging out with Sibel and committing adultery. 
all while telling her how beautiful she is, as well as vain and heartless, deceitful, yet delectable, and the two suck on each other's faces some more. Earl invites Sibel to stay for a glass of sherry, but she has to go because her husband is expecting her, and Earl is like, what would you do if I married? And Sibel is like, forbid it, except if you married for love. I might be okay with that. Oh, on a side note, can you do political favors for my husband? He has ambitions. <laughs> Suddenly, a ring at the door, and Sibel scrambles and hides. The mystery guest is... Cousin-sister love interest, who is here to be like, I want to marry you, and sings this whole song about how she wants to marry Earl. All while, Sibel is in the other room like, Oh no, the scandal if I were caught here. <laughs> and Sibel calls her names and is like, that stupid cow, go away. And Sibel makes a noise and Earl has to cover for her saying that it's his new man servant finding his way around. <laughs> and then Earl is like, I'm horny for Sibel, but I admire and respect cousin sister love interest Phoebe. Jesus. But when I'm with her, I'm thinking about Sibel. But when I'm with Sibel, I realize what a hoe she is and I respect Phoebe so much more. <laughs> Problems, right? Cousin-sister love interest is, uh, it, it, it might end up being the title of this episode. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, the song ends and Cousin Phoebe leaves after a cousin kiss on Earl. Ugh. And Earl goes back to macking on Sibel. But what massive, shocking revelation would be announced by the Paperboys? Cause haver cousin philanthropist Hyacinth has escaped from the cannibals and returned to London. <laughs> But then fell and died, so I was half right. <laughs> we then find ourselves with the Earl and his Earlness hating each other vehemently and bitching about who will be leeching off of them tonight. <laughs> and Earl to be an Earl to be meets Earl as of late and is being super is being a super gent while biding his time to kill. And suddenly, Sibel shows up on behalf of her husband to position herself politically with the Earl, who comes in to give a shitty, shitty toast to everyone in the room and calls his disavowed dead cousin a whore and jokes about being murdered for the throne by his new cousin, by this, by this new cousin of his. <laughs> Reading's hard. <laughs> Earl and Sibel sneak away to argue about how Earl is getting married and Sibel enjoys having him on a booty call leash and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> they should have been married instead. Blah, blah, blah. She loved him too much to marry him. Blah, blah, oh. blah. Anyways, at dinner, the Earl is a total prick to everyone and complains about the food and the company and the help when suddenly Miss Shingle shows up and Earl recognizes her and is like, Miss Shingle, who is like, enjoy the cod, all menacingly before walking off, and implies <laughs> that poison is in the food somewhere. And Earl is like, ah, death is everywhere. <laughs> Earl of Earl asks his guests if they like the castle, and proceeds to share details about everything in the castle, and tells a story about hunting boar, and how a boar almost killed him. He then sings about looking down the barrel of a gun, all while swinging it around and pointing it at everyone, demonstrating a complete lack of muzzle control. <laughs> everyone continues singing about looking down the barrel of a gun, and start to have a flashback about the boars being on top of them, and then he hands the gun to Earl and is like, 
pointed at me. Don't shoot me. I don't want to die. I'm confusing. <laughs> the Earl then takes a swig of his drink, which was poisoned, and he falls over dead. We then see Earl becoming the Earl for real. Earl <laughs> is now Earl in truth, and everything is great. <laughs> That is until Chief Inspector Pinkley comes in to arrest the newly minted Earl for murder. <laughs> and Earl starts to inner monologue as he runs through everyone who has died and how he might have been caught. But it turns out he's been he's being arrested for the murder of his predecessor. And he finds himself in a court pleading not guilty and all the different servants, doctors and police come in to give their testimonies. Earl then throws himself on the mercy of the court. He is, after all, not guilty of the crime he's being accused of. Mm -hmm. We then go back to the Earl as he is writing his memoirs, and the janitor comes in to be like, Hey, I'm also a dice queef, and I just <laughs> want you to know I liked your good not guilty speech. <laughs> Earl's cousin wife comes in to console her husband, and they suck face. Earl tells his cousin wife not to worry because he believes an unseen providence is watching over them. Cousin wife then asks, uh, how exactly Earl knows Sibel? Are they acquainted? And Earl's non-answer is all the answer cousin wife Phoebe needs. And she storms out of the room, leaving Earl to be like, well, shit. <laughs> Earl sits in his prison cell bench in... On. You don't sit in a bench. You sit on a bench. <laughs> Fucking Earl. Earl sits on his prison bench, and Sibel is singing to the inspector, saying that Earl is innocent of poisoning the Earl, and blames cousin wife. All, all while cousin wife is at the judge blaming Sibel for the murder. And the two women continue sing-blaming one another to their respective <laughs> law officials, but harmonize on how Earl is an innocent man. The judge and inspector meet up to be like, I've got evidence. Wait, you have evidence? But I have evidence. Wait, we have conflicting evidence? Well, damn. The judge and inspector meet with Earl and set him free, telling him the jury has been dismissed and he's free to go. Earl gets confronted by his wife and his mistress and revises the song from earlier where he sings about how much he likes both, but how he's always pining for the one he's not with, no matter which one he's with. And he's walking away. The inspector is like, ha, now that you have something interesting to put in your memoir. And Earl shits a brick going, oh God, my confession in my memoir. And then the guard comes up going, hey, I've got your confession. Here you go. <laughs> and Earl sings about how he's finally got everything he's ever wanted. And it gets revealed that Miss Shingle was the poisoner, and she would have come forth if New Earl was found guilty of the murder. Oh, and the janitor Dicequeef is planning on poisoning New Earl to make him the old Earl, so Janitor Earl can become the new Earl. But before any kind of murder can happen, the credits roll, and everyone does their bow. The end. <laughs> I liked the show. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, just very entertaining. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. It's one of those shows I had always wanted to watch, but uh, that usually involved me leaving the house <laughs> mm. <laughs> and commuting. I always miss it if it's close. But then when I see it, it's always center point, which is like an hour and a half away. <laughs> 
on I-15. Yeah. The worst traffic. That's, yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's a bit. Mm-hmm. That's a bit to go for for a show. I, I mean, I, I I shouldn't say that because I have traveled <laughs> for. I'm. I was doing shows in Orem and riding the bus all the way down there, and that was like an hour and a half bus ride. Yeah. See, this is why I don't do extracurricular activities because uh, they they sound horrible. <laughs> The the commute itself sounds horrible. I, I think that the thing that keeps me from doing it is the fact that there's still Rona. <laughs> mm. So, Warren. Okay. Unless a live stream occurs before we get to the next show, I, I do know what our next show is going to be. It's going to be really fucking weird. Yeah? Yeah, like... <sighs> How fucking weird, Kay. So remember Tommy? Is it gonna rock my world with weirdness? <laughs> am I gonna have... Am I gonna get my weird on? Yeah? Is it gonna weird all over me? Am I gonna have to take a shower because of all the weirdness on me? Oh, God. You have no idea. <laughs> yeah, and uh, because you said Tommy, I think I know which show, but I forgot what the name is. <laughs> yes, yeah, so... We will be uh, revisiting Roger Daltrey in another musical. Yeah, fuck. And I know it's on the tip of my tongue because we talked about it previously. And we talked about it when we did the Tommy episode. (laughs) But that was like a thousand years ago. Yeah, that was like 2019. Before the world changed. Before the world changed. (laughs) So... We will be doing Lichdomania. Lichdomania! That's the fucking name. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, we're we're gonna be uh we're gonna be doing some weird shows while we wait for Absent Moon, which is the show that if the live stream happens before we get Lichdomania out, then that will be our next episode. Otherwise, it will be Lichdomania and So does Roger Daltrey become a lich in this? No, so... And, like, t- it starts a necromatic army and, like, tries no, to conquer I, the world? No, I... Like, Franz Licht. Oh. That's lame. Composer. That's lame. Composer slash was... rock star boy. I was hoping this would be a high fantasy musical with, like... Well... Big epic battles. <laughs> well... <and> magic. <laughs> there's a little bit of some sort of magic going on there. There's a... There's a, uh... How coy, Kay... I will just let you uh, wait to see and then go, what the fuck, as we watch it. Kay's leaving me with Blue Weird. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Oh, so thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Uh, Glad that we are back, even if it is on a limited basis, because... On an intermittent basis. On an intermittent basis, yes. Um, Because the world is weird. And yeah, mm-hmm. so pretty much, yes, pretty much. So but luckily, I'm weird too. Yes, <laughs> that's why we're doing a string of weird shows is because the world is fucking weird. Because <laughs> get there's gonna be some even weirder stuff after Lichdomania. Granted, I think Lichdomania might be the weirdest. <laughs> might so we're gonna peak. We're gonna hit peak weird, and then it's gonna be. A coast downward. 
until we finish up the uh, movie musical apocalypse, because there's still three more shows for that. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... Thank you all again so much for listening. Um, If you want to follow us on social medias, you can do that at Instagram or Twitter. I refuse to call it the other name or our Facebook. All of them are Tone Deaf Musical. We also do have a Tumblr that is Tone Deaf Musical. And every so often, because I am the one who tends to run our Tumblr, uh, every so often something might leak for a moment from my main to the our official tumblr don't 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 post horny on i do not post horny on i don't post horny don't post horny on tone deaf (laughs) tone deaf might be the only place that horny would be okay give it to me and i'll post horny on tone deaf oh god (laughs) (laughs) no there just might be a random hilux post or something about plants not musicals if I flash the mic, can we also get counted as, like, adult entertainment? Warren! <laughs> Woo! Where's my beads? <laughs> Wait, when is Mardi Gras? Is it February? <laughs> what is time? Oh, God. Um, if you like this episode, or if you're going, what the fuck? Why? What? Uh, you can do so. By leaving a five-star review on Podchaser or Apple iTunes. Apple iTunes. Apple iTunes. (laughs) I'm a little rusty. And, uh... Mr. Apple himself reads all of the iTunes. (laughs) Jesus. You can also uh, follow our show on Good Pods, uh, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our Patreon, where we have some bonus material, including our two-part furry musical series, (laughs) as well as Capitalism Gone Wild and other things. (laughs) Anyway, that will be it for this week. I'm Kay. And I'm Warren. And this has been Tone Deaf. I'm gonna have to go out and get eggs. I need to go dice queef. What? <laughs> it's just a fun word to say. Oh my god, I'm not making that the episode title. <laughs> 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 <laughs>